Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, Netflix challenges the draft media bill, National Geographic lays off the last of its staff writers, and ITV has been sniffing around Channel 4's Gogglebox. Also on the show, NUJ membership is down, and Ryan Reynolds wants to take S4C to the States. All that plus in the media quiz, we'll learn whether companies have faced blood, sweat or tears. That's all to come in this edition of the Media Podcast. And in the news this week, the agent and producer Sarah Putt has been confirmed as the new chair of BAFTA. And the hottest super indie on the market, All Three Media, has become even more appealing. Uh, They've reported a tidy £1 billion in revenue after sales increased 17% in 2022. The company's also taken a majority voting control of Studio Lambert, which itself turned over £37.2 million in its final quarter last year. Uh, And some news companies may have got the wrong end of the stick with The Sun, LBC and The Daily. Daily Mail getting suckered into an urban myth about schoolchildren discussing whether they could identify as a cat. Uh, the school in question has confirmed that no pupil has identified as a cat or any other animal. Well, I'm glad we've sorted that out. Uh, now, joining me remotely at the London Podcast Studios is journalist and broadcaster Miranda Sawyer. Hello. Uh, Miranda, you've got a new podcast out called Paper Cuts. Uh, what's it all about? Oh, yes. It's very exciting. Um, It's a proper job for me, having been freelance for ages. Um, I'm the host of uh, Paper Cuts, which is uh, a modern newspaper review. Essentially, we go on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Um, We arrive on your podcast feed uh, in mid-morning and it's me and a journalist and a funny person, different every day. (laughs) And we go through the papers and bring you all the news that you want to hear, really, with analysis and jokes. And obviously, you've been a journalist for a long time. Now you have to look at newspapers professionally. Is there anything you've noticed uh, that has struck you in the first few episodes? Uh, yes, that the Daily Star is the is the place to go for great headlines and absolutely <laughs> bonkers news. I mean, it's it's kind of operating in its own world. It's it's amazing. It's actually a kind of work of genius, I would say, the Daily Star. And obviously, I mean, things that you might guess, which is just the slightly biases that, that come through different papers so you know the the, the papers that are maybe more on the pro tories how they how they uh kind of how, how they feature a story is very different from ones that are kind of on the more more left wing i mean I, I actually find it really interesting it's incredibly interesting mm. and also the fact that the news changes really quickly it's very rare that you get the same headlines stretching over a, a, a 
a, a, you know, an, a, a time, unless it's kind of an inquiry that keeps coming back, it changes all the time. It's very, very quick. And I find that interesting as well. And Miranda, you're going to be facing some more podcast competition in the sort of newsy politics world, um, uh, this time from Ed Balls and George Osborne, who are teaming up to do a new podcast. Well, it's quite interesting because it's going to be made by the um, people who uh, who who make who've kind of brought over Emily Maitlis and John Sobel. Mm. So it's made by people who are very very good. It's going to be a weekly podcast, so that's slightly in you know slightly. There's a different rhythm to that. Really, it's probably going oh. to have guests on there, different topics. Um, I think it's interesting because I mean it's two older white guys telling you stuff, isn't it? <laughs> We've yes. got quite a lot of that. Um, but what? And also, what? I what? Um, but also, I do think there's a, there's an interesting dynamic in that I would say that generally Ed Balls is very well liked, mostly actually because he went on um, on Strictly Come Dancing mm. and he came over really well and you know it's quite self-deprecating. I wouldn't say the same for jo- George Osborne. So. It's whether mm. whether the likability of Ed Balls will kind of sweep sweep Osborne along. Um, I think is a, a kind of question that needs to be answered. I mean, I haven't heard it. It might be absolutely amazing. Also down the line, we welcome back to the show Karen Robinson from Edelman. Um, hi, Karen. Hey, Matt. How are you? Not doing? Not bad. Uh, excellent. On another warm day. Um, uh, I was reading about renowned correspondent Anne Leslie passing away this week. Uh, what do you think she'll be most remembered for? Well, I mean, the history is very much still in rough draft, but I think you have to look back on and say what a remarkable, what a remarkable life and career she had. I think she, she lived through, you know, going from a time when she was presumably one of the only women in her field um, out there into into the current day where there aren't still enough women in, the, in her field. So, um, but she's she's lived through extraordinary changes, and I think I was reflecting on kind of listening back to some of the things that she said um, around the Me Too movement, and she was a little bit dismissive of women who might have been um, experiencing sexual harassment in in previous generations. But I I just I think it's you have to kind of stop, pause, and reflect on the generation of some women that came before us, and what they had to do to get by, and how they how they lived, and how that shapes the way we think and the way we move and think you can admire and respect someone for the career that they've had and still feel glad that we think a bit differently now so it yeah it's just it's, it's been a cause of a lot of reflection for me it's interesting i've met her actually i have to say i met Anne leslie and she was incredibly kind of um uh, intimidating on one level you know just as a personality she was really kind of forceful but she was actually incredibly encouraging you know, I was a young journalist, a bit all over the shop, and she was amazingly encouraging to me, I have to say. I thought, I thought she was great. Uh, well, in the media news this week, um, news at Netflix, uh, they've been raising concerns um, about what's being placed under Ofcom's jurisdiction. Uh, this is about the draft media bill. Um, Netflix obviously concerned uh, that given their global nature, uh, they're worrying that um, Ofcom could become a global policeman and questions uh, whether they should be held under a proposed two-tier system. Um, uh, Karen, what, what, are, what are Netflix and uh, Ofcom arguing about? Well, I think the concern that they've raised, and it's it's a little tricky to tell at this point just how valid that concern is going to be, is that because Netflix um, produces content all around the world for the entire world, and they don't necessarily segregate their product product in a purely national basis in that way, um, that Ofcom would put itself in the position of having to be the world's regulator, essentially. Um, and I think you know it, it's a fair it's a fair question to raise. Um, and I think you know, for example, the 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 challenge they raised is the 
possibility that people could then kind of effectively foreign shop their legal issue um, and bring, you know, people with problems anywhere in the world might bring it to the UK. Um, it's a little bit of a similar situation to how UK libel law is often used in that way, where um, because Britain has much kind of stricter libel laws than other, lots of other countries do, it can be used as a chiller of free speech. Um, so I think that's the concern. I think the counterpoint to it would be um, if you are a genuinely multinational corporation producing content all, all over the world, who is going to regulate you? Um, you know, so I think it, it feels a little uncomfortable to say nobody should have regulatory authority over over large multinational platforms like Netflix. Equally, I don't think they should necessarily be entirely policed by one small island nation. So uh, I can see I can see both sides here. But Miranda, I was thinking if someone's um, uh, a, a, an American broadcaster and they sell a program to ITV or something, ITV have got to follow Ofcom's rules. Why should it be any different for the streamers? I think their argument is that um, with kind of what's called video on demand is that you choose to kind of look at it. So what might happen is you just might be flipping through if you've got a kind of, you know, old school telly, you might be flipping through and just come across something. And that means that it absolutely has to be completely legally tight. And with with Netflix or any other streaming kind of service, video on demand service, then actually you can you choose to go and have a look at it. You choose mm. to go and look at Tinder Swindler. You choose to go on all these different kind of options that there is. And so you're making kind of active choice. So it's I suppose it's almost like kind of slightly transferring the risk onto you. So that's your that's your decision. And you decide you do you decide to kind of take that on. Karen, do you think there's much on Netflix or, or Amazon at the moment that would, would fall foul of, of the broadcasting code or, or, or any rules that Ofcom may introduce about harm and offence? It's a really interesting question because I, I I don't know of anything right now that would necessarily contradict those rules. So I, I don't know what specifically they're concerned about. It may just be more that they're concerned about the precedent and the possibility that the costs and the difficulty of, of compliance, of just having to consider that as an issue um, for all around the world. But for the moment, I mean, Netflix is so huge. It's, you know, it's the world's content library. It's got, it's got so much on the platform. And I think one of the things that we've seen is a lot of streamers actually taking content down, um, older content down, or kind of a lot of, uh, or removing shows, etc. I wouldn't want to see anything regulatory like this pushing Netflix in the direction of, of having less content on the platform or being more nervous what the, about what they do put out. Um, but having said that, I suspect they're probably well within whatever the regulations would be in the, in the current setup. Other countries in the world might have more challenge to Netflix. You know, there are countries where with much trickier regulations about what you're allowed to show, um, and and, you know, Netflix is indeed producing producing uh, television for a lot of those same countries. So they've got a really delicate like, delicate line to walk. Hey, Miranda, you know, France has got rules around how much has to be produced in that country. Um, is, is this a bit of a case of like regulators just quite like regulating and obviously governments uh, like uh, <laughs> add, adding on some um, some issues as well? Uh, do, you think, do you think maybe what you were saying earlier that actually this is a something you, know, you select what to watch, there should be less regulation? I think, but I mean, and I don't believe in kind of a free for all. I just absolutely don't believe in that. That's that that seems wrong to me. But I think that what they're they're perhaps talking about a little bit is about kind of um, biases in news programs. So you know, you can have a documentary that's perhaps about. Um, Climate change, for instance, that might say that um, we should really be, you know, uh, reacting to the climate crisis in a certain way. And that might get people's backs up 
in you know who are on the on mm. the other side and then if they feel like they can do, then say oh it's not this is a biased program everything should be like the BBC then they can t- bring it over to the UK and kind of sue within that I think that's what they're really worried about because I want I think they want to make lively interesting um, not you know not inaccurate programming but they equally don't want to be, end up in that t- that very difficult BBC position where they have to balance everything out on both sides I think there is an, also an interesting issue of the regulations setting up two different tiers of streaming services where global players like Netflix Amazon Prime would fall under a, a slightly more harshly restricted regime uh, whereas there might be a tier two set of streamers that would kind of have a little bit more license and I think the interesting thing for that is I suspect that probably it would be more British-based businesses that would probably fall under the tier two or slightly smaller operators. So you could argue, and the European Union historically might have looked at it as this could be a, an anti-competitive issue. Um, so potentially that's something to look at. And that may be something else that secretly Netflix might have in mind is whether this is fair. Uh, well, more changes to businesses, this time uh, in print. Um, the National Geographic, this is the magazine, will no longer be sold on US newsstands, according to the Washington Post. Uh, the magazine is also going to lay off its remaining staff writers and rely solely on freelancers. Uh, Miranda, journalist James Ball uh, wrote last night, I'll never understand how something can sell 1.8 million copies a month and still not be profitable. Um, Why do you think uh, National Geographic are uh, are making these changes? Well, I don't think that they're making the changes. It's the big bosses making the changes. Mm. I think the problem for all, I mean, you know, for any journalist who actually is involved in making the product, making whatever that is, the programme, the the magazine, is that actually all those decisions are taken way, way, way above. You can have an absolutely brilliant product, but because it doesn't fit within whatever portfolio they're, they're discussing, it doesn't bring in the profits that they want, then they can just say, actually, you know what, it's not making the profit that we kind of thought. So see you later. So, I mean, I think that that's the difficulty with it because you can be making turning a, a great profit but within this huge organization that profit is not deemed to be enough and so therefore you just get taken away there's a there's a really weird quote around that national geographic situation actually where um the boss is kind of saying uh, what well, it's, it's going to come off the newsstands but it's still going to be a great magazine and i think i mean i know that obviously in america there's a lot of people who subscribe that's essentially how mm, magazines mm. are sold but it does seem very weird to me that to take it off the newsstand it's still going to be a, fa- a fabulous magazine i think that's very odd uh, well, you're a, you're a freelance journalist. Um, you I write am. the audio column for the Observer. <laughs> um, isn't this good news? No more staff writers. Just all the all the all the money going to freelancers. Yeah, it's interesting because actually there's a bit of a... When they said that, I thought that is a process I recognise. So having been freelance right from the start, the really... It's, it's, it's hard to say this, but the, you know, if freelancing suits a certain kind of personality, it happens to suit mine. I don't, that, I don't mean that, that, that I think I'm better than somebody mm. who likes to go to work. I'm just a different personality. That's how I like to work. But what is, it's happened within the media, within uh, newspapers in this country, that essentially people who are in the office now are simply the editors and the people who put it together, production office. That's it. Nobody who is an actual journalist is in that office anymore. And it used to be that obviously the office was full of journalists making loads of ideas, having having discussions about this and that. And that has just gone. And so now what happens is that somebody asks you, can you do this? Off you go. I mean, really, basically, you're taking out of things like pensions. You're taking out of things that, you know, why run a cafe? You know, you just mm. get taken out and you, you're just it's like a, it's just farming out. Karen, do you think this is indicative of a decline in, in print, a further decline in print in the US? Um, are they just further along the digital curve or, or is this just big company economics? 
I mean, I think it's indicative of something even even more than just the decline of print. Um, and I, I see it from two ways. First of all, yes, 100%, this is about National Geographic leaning into its digital focus strategy. Um, it's also the death of a particular kind of journalism, which National Geographic pioneered, um, which is, and my cousin used to work for National Geographic, so I, I know the organization really well, and it's much bigger than just the magazine. Like They've got a huge educational remit. They've got lots of programs that they deliver all around the country and all of the world. But their, their journalism is grounded not in news storytelling, but in kind of deep anthropological investigations and interrogations. They've done kind of much deeper, richer journalism historically, and including things like the photography, the famous National Geographic photography. They would second journalists to locations for three, six months at a time to kind of really do feature stories, understanding the visual iconography of a place. Um, and that kind of journalism, I think, is is, is unfortunately um, declining ever more. And I think that it's not just the shift to digital. It's the how do we approach journalism? How do we think about those longer form stories where there are fewer and fewer publications now who are doing it? And unfortunately, I think the journalism that ex that is we're shifting to is the stuff that's easier to do and therefore much less valuable, right? Nobody could do what National Geographic did, um, and now nobody will do it. So um, you know, it's expensive, it's time consuming, but really valued. Um, and I think the 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 way that they tried to approach it in the past, they always had a in the U.S. they were membership based, right? Mm. So yes, you talk about subscriptions, but they originally they're a 150 year old magazine. They always talked about kind of National Geographic members and that you weren't a subscriber to the magazine you yourself were an explorer engaged with this world um you know it sounds a bit twee now but actually it was something that you know historically because was very meaningful to people and it's what's set up for them to have these educational programs and so forth so yeah i think it's i think it's a loss and it's a loss not just because we're shifting from paper to to online because you can deliver good stories in either way but because the stories themselves will be different and that's a shame i mean much this is a television story as well isn't it because uh, national geographic obviously has a tv channel i think that was scooped up by disney probably from fox yeah. uh, when they when they bought a lot of their assets what the magazine does is maybe yeah. not front of mind for the disney executives i'd imagine yeah but it's it's funny to me though because for me that that kind of classic yellow yellow bordered magazine was sort of like it was the brand mm. it was the mm. icon on which everything else was built right like for disney it would be like saying we're not going to make animated films anymore because you know that's actually not much of our business well it doesn't matter how much of a bu your business it is it's what gives you license to do all of the other things so i mean they'll always have the heritage and that you know it's still a very strong organization i'm sure that they will continue to thrive they do you you know, for example, in my world of kind of, you know, more on the brand led side of things, they do a lot of commercial partnerships that bring in a lot of money. It still has a really strong brand. So they've got something to work with still. But I do feel like they've they've kind of lost something that was elemental to their brand with this decision. Miranda, do you think here in the UK we're going down the same path or is there been a bit of a resurgence with people wanting a tactile product as well? Sort of a magazine as a as a sort of interesting luxury rather than just a sort of way to, to consume some content. Some Content. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I thought, oh, Vogue was doing really well. And then, of course, now Vogue is, seems to have been like, <laughs> taken away from the UK and going to be managed from, from um, uh, in, as a kind of worldwide concern. It's really interesting when, Karen, was, when, when you were saying about the idea of the magazine as the kind of leader of the brand, right? It's like, a, you know, I could make an argument to um, big bosses that actually this might be a loss-making concern, but it's actually the thing that gives you the right to go and do everything else. And I think something like, say, Vogue or National Geographic or anything like that, that's what 
does it for them. They need that product or it can't, it, you can't say what the product is. And uh, for instance, if I'm, as I'm talking about Vogue, you know, if you have a, a cover like the Rihanna cover that they had very recently, it was an amazing, absolutely mm. amazing cover. I specifically bought it for that brilliant photograph of Rihanna and ASAP Rocky and their, and their child. It was absolutely brilliant. And I think that that can happen. And, and if you don't have the magazine in order to kind of commission it and make that product, you don't have the thing that will then sell the idea of what Vogue is or National Geographic is out to the population. People don't know what you are. You know, I mean, having spoken to somebody who's worked on The Face, you know, The Face is an absolutely was an absolutely brilliant magazine and it's now online. It's, it's pretty good. It's great. But it's not The Face anymore because people mm. don't quite know what it is. You know, it doesn't have that actual physical product that you can then say, you know, if you're a star, here I am. Here's a cover. I can it can be framed. Here I am within this and then it can go out to the world. Uh, well, over ITV, there seems to have been an attempt uh, by them to poach Gogglebox. Uh, the broadcast apparently held talks <laughs> with Studio Lambert to acquire Channel 4's second biggest show. Karen, I mean, Studio Lambert's a, a, a big part of, of all three media, a lot of success, thinking uh, Gogglebox will say something like The Traitors. Cheeky of ITV to go after Gogglebox, but they're not the first uh, broadcaster that wants to steal a crown jewel, are they? No, absolutely. You can't. You kind of can't blame them for asking, can you? It's 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 worth a try if you're a commercial broadcaster. Why not give it a go? I mean, I must admit, I'm I'm probably the la- the last person in the UK you should be talking about this because I must admit to never having seen an episode. What? I know. <laughs> what is wrong with me? Um, it's such but, fun. But it, I can't believe you don't watch it. It's great. <laughs> that's, that's what everyone says. So apparently, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, but yeah, I know that it is. That it is one of Channel 4's kind of two two big landmark shows, and it has that. It does just as you were saying, Miranda. It, it kind of people love it. It creates a good feeling. It kind of gives people something to talk about. So I'm not surprised that ITV would want it. I'm also not surprised that Channel 4 is pleased to have kept it. Uh, Miranda, I mean, ITV and Channel 4 seem at sort of opposite ends of the spectrum at the moment. And you've got Channel for sort of cutting shows because it's running out of dosh. Meanwhile, ITV are likely to spend, if, if the bid's accepted, uh, probably about a billion pounds to buy all three media, which would uh, scoop up Studio Lambert. Um, mm. I mean, it, both of them are, are in very different positions, aren't they? They are. I mean, Channel 4 was slightly, I mean, it was slightly messed around by Nadine Doris, to be honest. So I think mm. that it really, it really didn't really know what was happening. Um, and was um, became very unsure of as to where the money was coming in, how it was going to be able to support itself. I imagine it was incredibly destabilising for anybody, right from the top to the bottom. Program makers will carry on making their programs, but you know, if you're trying to run a station like that and you don't really know where the funding's coming from, you're having to fight to work out what it is. It was just a really difficult time. So, I mean, I'm hopeful now that it, that perhaps it feels a little bit more stable. But I mean, Channel Four has always. I mean, you know, it's long operated as kind of the busy little terrier kind of snapping at the at the heels of the, mm. uh, of the proper channels. You know, that's the kind of point of Channel 4. You want it to be something slightly offbeat, slightly alternative, a bit, you know, fun, but not completely mainstream. And so, you know, it, it's always operated differently from ITV, which is essentially family viewing. I think of ITV as absolutely, you know, the warm hug of family viewing. This is what it's there for. And I don't think of that with, with of, of Channel 4. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just, mm. it's a different kind of brand. Uh, I mean, Karen, if, if you're talent, um, you sort of go to sort of where security is. And when you probably, you look at ITV at the moment, um, 
uh, their spending. Uh, they got a lot of investment into ITVX as well. And now what they might do with, with all, all three media. Um, ITV Studios is obviously a big part of their business. We heard from Jake last week, counts about 50% of their, of their revenues now. Um, we've got a return of Big Brother. We've got them seeing that they're after Gogglebox. Is actually ITV in, in a pretty good position? Yeah, I mean, I would say ITV is in a, in a fairly good position for within the world of broadcasters. I mean, bearing in mind, there's also all the streaming services that we were talking about earlier, who also have a lot of money to spend and, and can be a really good place for um, for creators who want to feel a little bit more free and unconstrained from some of the limits of broadcast. Um, Gogglebox is really well designed to be that kind of cozy broadcast show, I think. But, you know, for creators, I think they've got so many more options of where they can go to nowadays than they used to. So um, I imagine ITV probably is having to compete pretty hard for some things they would like i mean miranda we're talking about shows that have been around a long time you know, gogglebox has been around mm. a long time return of big brother you know love island has sort of maybe matured to the towards the end its ratings are, are dropping um <laughs> well, maybe that's not the right word <laughs> Uh, uh, has some longevity uh, in it. Um, uh, there is a danger there. Like, wh- where, where is the space for new ideas? Where you know you need hits, uh, and hits yeah. can, you can do quite well, uh, sort of recycling nostalgia, can't you? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me that they're trying to buy something that's already established. And then actually, mm. if you talk about Channel Four, that you know their their single most successful. Um, uh, show is the Great British Bake Off, which is mm. also a nick. You know, like so, it's kind of people kind of nicking different things. And it's incredibly hard to make a program that you know that isn't a drama that that's you know that isn't a kind of uh, shiny floor show that grabs people's attention. You know, I mean, if you you know whether it's a little quiz show, those things do quite well. But you know, it's very hard to find the right thing that people just gather to their hearts. And you you the only way you're going to find out is if you keep basically chucking stuff at the screen and seeing what sticks that's the, that's the deal the ones that last are the ones that we genuinely like you know pointless lasses because we all genuinely like pointless you know that's that's the deal and you can't really you have to invest and trust uh, program makers to just have a go at stuff and then you'll know you'll know because people will be talking about it people will watch it whether it's whether it's going to be one of those ones that lasts uh, thanks both we've got more media news after this It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Okay, Miranda and Karen are back with me. Uh, Time for some news in brief. Uh, Annual returns show that the NUJ membership, this is the National Union of Journalists, has dropped 21% in a decade, um, although uh, journalist numbers are reportedly on the up. Um, Miranda, what value do you think the NUJ can can give to its members in, in today's world? Oh, God, I think the NUJ is absolutely invaluable. I have to say, as a freelancer, if you've want, like, if you got a dodgy contract, which everybody has signed by mistake at certain points, they can help you with that. If you feel like you've been um, sacked incorrectly, they can help you with that. They genuinely, um, you know, I think that freelancers, I mean, often think, I can't afford it. You know, it's Mm. as simple as that. It's about 30 quid a month, which seems actually quite a lot these days. Um, But... Honestly, it's really worth it, I would always say. You know, maybe I'm a little older, maybe union membership means something more to my generation, I don't know. But, you know, everybody was in the union when I was younger. So when I became a journalist, I just joined the union. I thought that's what you did. Um, But it's absolutely proved invaluable you know you get really basic things like you get a press card which means you can get in everywhere that's like which is really really useful it does protect you in situations where we as we've been talking about you know journalists are getting sacked magazines are getting shut down there's big kind of kind of seismic maneuvers over the top of us that are all to do with business and actually nothing to do with what we do and the only protection you've got really in those situations is a union i would always absolutely recommend people join it do you think it's sort of a little bit of a modern divide and rule? You know, lots of freelancers, a lot of people working in more kind of content factory type environments mm. rather than uh, the ability to kind of think about pieces and you know, write one or two things a week. Now it's like do 10 things a day um, that just it hasn't sort of struck people or younger journalists that, that there's something out there that can support them. That's so interesting. I think that's probably true, actually, because, you know, I, I when I first started, I started at Smash Hits and I just mm. joined the union. I asked somebody like, is there a union? Shall I join the union? And they went, yeah, this is the number. This is how you do it. You know, it's a bit like it's a lot of things about today's working environment is it's just all about you. You can feel very lonely and uh, or, or, you know, by yourself. It's, it's OK when mm. you're my age, but I kind of think when you're younger, you know, that how you learn about how you're job works how it's protected all those kind of things is actually quite often in an office and people don't have that privilege anymore so i do think that that yeah there is a knock-on effect people don't realize that it makes any difference at all almost like the only way you're going to find out really is on social media so if twitter says Mm. this is probably a good idea that's the kind of the environment where you might find these things out because you're just at home or wherever sitting in a cafe with other people Elon's never going to allow that to come through, uh, Miranda. And Karen, why, why do you think why do you think uh, memberships uh, been dropping? Why do I think memberships dropping? Well, I think there are probably a lot of reasons, but I, I think the easiest explanation is to say that it's tied to the precarity of journalism as a profession, mm. which is ironic because, of course, y- unions are needed when a profession is particularly precarious. But right now, journalism, you're seeing cuts and layoffs at in entities, of, as we just talked about, like the National Geographic, all around all, all around the country, all around the world. Um, I think the business model for journalism is making it harder and harder for you to make a living as a pure and exclusively as a journalist. So people are making these portfolio careers, they're becoming content creators of different platforms and possibly not thinking of themselves as primarily journalists in the same way that traditionally a previous generation would. They think of themselves as, you know, people who do a lot of things. And some of that happens to be journalism, some of it's content production, some of it might be, you know, freelance work for, co- for companies. I have a lot of friends who are in that situation where they, they work for five or six different organizations, sometimes doing journalism, sometimes doing consulting. Um, and in that situation, it probably feels less as Essential to be a part of the union. I do find it really interesting, though, um, that this decline is happening specifically in journalism at a time when unions elsewhere are actually experiencing a moment of some strength. Um, obviously, we've seen strikes 
all around the country. Um, public sector unions in particular have been very, very active to a degree they haven't been probably for decades. Um, and you've seen union membership actually going up after a long decline in a lot of sectors. I mean, still nowhere near its peak. Um, but I think people are starting to understand the value of collective action in a new way. But I think journalism as a career, as a profession, has just changed so much that it doesn't probably feel in quite the same place for a lot of people. Well, speaking about portfolio careers, someone that's enjoyed um, that environment is Alain Kloss-Stevens. She's taken on the role as the BBC's acting chair this week. Um, And she began by stressing her aim to rebuild the BBC's reputation. Uh, She remarked that Richard Sharp, he was the old chair, uh, debacle has had a profound effect on the staff and board. And although optimistic, acknowledged that there is an awful lot to be done. I sort of feel like that's what everyone says. Um, uh, Mm. Miranda, who do you think would be a good fit for, for a BBC chair uh, after Alan has finished her acting ship? Well, obviously, somebody who's not really involved in a political party would help, really. I mean, that's what I would I would say. You want somebody who knows what um, broadcasting is and is willing to let, to be honest, I think with a board, is um, let the BBC do what it is good at and then perhaps, you know, and rein it in occasionally. Stop trying to dominate. You're the board. You're not, you don't make the programme. You're the board. That's the deal. So obviously you have to, you know, the, the, the DG will have to come to you with various monetary decisions that need to be signed off with, you know, what is actually happening. But, you know, I'm on a couple of boards and what you do is you essentially help the people who are running the institution to do their job properly. That's, that's what your job is. It's not your job to say, I don't like that programme, can you take it off? I mean, it seems a bit off. And that's the, the problem with what's happened with the, the boards over the last few years at the BBC is they just feel like they need to be involved in, broad, in broadcasting. They don't. They're a board. Shut up. Uh, but isn't it that governments just love fiddling with media? Um, oh, they're, 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 yeah. they're obsessed with their, their own image and therefore they yeah. want to get involved yeah, please, in, in please can you pub- make me look nice that's what they want isn't it can you do more gentle interviews with me where I look a bit clever I mean it's just it's sorry but I find it really irritating I just think back off you know that's not the you know I'm aware that the BBC is publicly funded but actually to me that means that you answer to the to the people not to the politicians you have to answer to the people well, they would ask. They would answer that they're they're your representative, so they get to go oh, and sweep in and, and choose the choose the chair. Uh, uh, Karen, um, before we get to a new chair, um, Alain Kloss uh, Stevens has has got to sort of steady the ship after a lot of people being pretty unhappy. Um, what do you think her priorities are in this interregnum? Is I think restoring the confidence and trust, both of the people within the BBC um, and across the wider, I would argue, kind of political and stakeholder community. Um, it's obviously been a, a real earthquake for the BBC to be, you know, for the previous chair to be caught in such a political um, scandal, um, to be so much at the heart of kind of d- d- discussions about the, you know, the ethics and the integrity of, of, of the then prime minister, um, feels like, you know, she's got a lot of almost just kind of boring confidence building mm. to do to say, you know, we are still open, we are running as normal, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it's a really, you know, I think there's a, what's the expression? There's a, an expression that's often used for when you hand, um, you, you hand a, a prominent position to a woman just at the moment they need, they, everything needs to be fixed and then um, <laughs> and they, they deal with all the fallout and then it gets handed to somebody else um, just when things start to improve. So I, I hope this isn't going to be like that. Um, um, 
I think the uh, the timing of it is interesting because without wanting to get too ahead of things, you know, where it's probably going to take her a little while to get settled in. They're going to have this protracted search. Mm. I hope it is a protracted search. But pretty soon after the appointment is made, it's likely that we will be heading into a general election and then potentially, um, if you believe the polls, a change of government. So I actually think that's quite a nice environment for them to be doing it in because I don't think they should do it with this, the presumption of any particular set of government policies in place, but actually with the sense of, hey, we don't know who's going to be in charge in Westminster. We just need to focus on what we're doing here. Uh, well, Alan came from S4C and there was some S4C news this week uh, with Ryan Reynolds. Hollywood star Ryan Reynolds has signed a deal with S4C uh, to produce Welsh language programming for the US. Uh, the broadcaster will deliver six hours of weekly content uh, to be aired on the actor's maximum effort channel. I think he's got some deals with some streamers uh, in the US. And um, when I saw this, I thought it was quite strange because normally S4C commission people to make programmes and uh, and this way, it's gone the other way around, where S4C are the um, commissionee. Um, uh, Karen, think there's a big market for Welsh programming in the US? No, there is definitely not. Um, <laughs> at least not the last language program. Um, but um, but the Wrexham program's gone down a treat. People are absolutely loving it. Um, it seems to be kind of a big transatlantic hit, which is really sweet. Um, so it's been lovely. So I assume it's basically what you've got is an extended universe in, in Wales. Right, so they're they're doing a sort of Marvel Marvel superheroes brand extension from Wrexham into other Welsh themed content. Um, I mean, that's the only thing I can. Miranda, <laughs> it's it quite from. strange that sort of Ryan Reynolds has become the savior of Welsh broadcasting. I didn't have that on my 2023 bingo card. Well, no, me neither. <laughs> I do love it though. I mean, it's a kind of, it's such a, a warm, he, he seems like such a warm hearted mm. person and he has become so involved in Wrexham FC and so kind of swept up with it that, you, you know, you could be cynical about it. You could be, I mean, I suppose a bit snotty about it, but actually he just genuinely seems to really enjoy being welcomed by Wrexham FC and he wants to spread whatever, you know, the, not only the love, but the money. And I think, fine, mm. you know, that's absolutely great. People get, in, when you have a lot of money in, and you're in the situation that he's in, you can spend it on all sorts of things. And actually, why not spend it on a community that might need the money and has got lots of talented people that are just, you know, that just need a bit of a boost. I think it's great. I do like the idea of this kind of Welsh cinematic universe that spans <laughs> the football club and other production <laughs> with some Hollywood stars at the top of it. It's brilliant. Um, right, I think we've just got enough time uh, for the media quiz which this week is entitled blood sweat and or tears um it's uh, so i'm gonna name a media brand or figure uh, you'll tell me if this week they faced blood sweat or tears uh, you can buzz in if you think you know the answer so karen you'll say karen and miranda you'll say well uh, oh well, i'm gonna make my buzz noise okay sorry uh, i dismiss that okay i will so say I think you're buzzing with your name, Miranda. So you will say... Oh, I just say Miranda. <laughs> Miranda, there we go. Can't I just go... <laughs> it's complex enough without deviating from the rules. Right, here we go. Blood, blood sweat or tears. Question number one. Um, tribute acts on Meta. Karen. Karen. Uh, they're having tears. Tears, yes. Because Why are they having tears? Because Meta's new rules uh, ban tribute acts or at least makes it very hard for them to operate on the platform. 
Uh, yes, this, you're right. Tribute acts, are, uh, they're up in arms because Meta's policies ban anyone from impersonating someone else. Uh, the performers who rely on the network for their profession have seen their Facebook and Instagram accounts vanish, uh, although Matt, Meta have said they will reinstate those of any valid impersonators. So I guess it's like this is the difference between someone sort of impersonating Joe Biden uh, for evil political means versus someone who makes 50 bucks showing up to open a Walmart. Yeah, I feel sorry for them. It's a shame. <laughs> I'm it's crying shame. with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, point, point to you, Karen. Uh, number two, uh, Netflix billboards. Blood, sweat, or tears. Oh, I've got this Ooh, one, Miranda. Karen. Oh, Miranda. Go ahead, Miranda. Okay, this is sweat. So disgusting. Okay, so there's a new film out called Extraction 2 and um, Chris Hemsworth is in it. I've not seen it, you know, I've no idea. But um, he gets, you know, he works hard because he's Chris Hemsworth and he's in a dodgy situation extracting things and um, he's sweating. And if you go to the some billboards there's a big picture of his face and it's there's there's wetness it's sweat and you can touch it, which I just think is icky. But, you yeah, know, it's, I mean, it's, it's a that, way to get you involved. Yeah, street-level posters seemingly secrete sweat from the actor's pores. Um, it's actually laser holes pumping water at a pressure and frequency to mirror the consistency of sweat. Um, some poor person at a billboard company got that brief and was like, Jesus, what do I have to do as a job next? Yeah, but uh, I tell right, you, uh, some, po- some, some, some person at an agency somewhere is really <laughs> excited about the con they're going to win for that next year. So, you know, media first, roundabouts. Media first, sweating billboards, <laughs> get, it on, get it on the proposals. Um, right, a point each. Uh, number three. Question number three. Stitcher. Blood, sweat, or tears. Uh, Karen. Karen. Um, well, I guess I guess I'd have to say blood because they're shutting down their podcast app. Uh, or I tears. Would, or yeah. tears. Yeah. I, I've got tears. Not but sweat. I mean, bl- bl- it could be blood too. This is so. This is um. So Stitcher is a podcast <laughs> app that Sirius XM own in America, and actually it's one of the sort of OGs of podcast listening. Uh, it's been around for fifteen years. Um, uh, the app was acquired alongside some production companies in twenty twenty for three hundred twenty five million dollars. Uh, but now uh, Sirius XM are going to incorporate podcasts and the app into their existing stuff. Um, I mean, Miranda, this is another example of the big spending in the in the podcast world and the world changing and all that money sort of being left on the side yeah i mean you know stitch i mean i have to say that i mean stitcher as you say is, is one of the kind of original ways of listening to podcasts but it's also made a lot of um great programs as a, 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 a as kind of part of that and that, mm. those programs will still continue so i think sirius xm are trying their kind of best it's just that particular way of listening to podcasts will be taken away and for anyone who's a bit sentimental that's a bit of a shame but i actually think in terms of a takeover it's not too bad they're trying their best serious here they're really trying to kind of honor the uh, the the existing customers and and hope that they will transfer over to uh, an app that will work as well and in the end you know it's just delivering the podcasts don't get sad it's okay wipe your tears um, if you if you aren't spotify or apple should you just get out of the the podcast app business they've sewn it up really or bbc sound or bbc um, sounds uh, no yeah. i don't think you should actually uh, because if you, because actually there's some um, there are some very small companies or, or smaller compared with them I would say global player you know like there, there are some mm. uh, situations where actually I think they've done really well and what they've said is like okay we make programs and we and the best way to, for you to hear them is on this and it is ours why don't you subscribe 
and I I don't mind that at all. Tortoise is great. You know, there's lots of the, mm. the, there's lots of places actually. You can only get things with that. The thing I find a little bit annoying is I have to pay lots of little bits of money <laughs> in order to listen to everything, which I do find a little frustrating. But for general use, yes, I think it's difficult. Spotify and Apple absolutely dominate. If you're going to say to somebody who's not used to podcasts, how do you do it? And they have an iPhone. You say, click on the thing that says podcasts. And that is Apple. I think I think the interesting thing is, can you do anything more with it? I'm just watching really interested with interest. The New York Times has just put out a kind of new audio player platform that's kind of meant to be sort of podcast plus. So it's podcast plus audio journalism. So they've started to, in addition to producing podcasts, they've started to kind of have some of their print journalism read out by professional professional um, audio expert uh, audio performers as audio content so it's kind of this whole thing of like get all the audio journalism that you need in one place and i think i would like to see some of these other existing podcast apps start to think about that kind of what else could we do with it how could we integrate things together because there are a lot of players out there that people swear by they love they really you know think they have a great experience on them so if they're going to survive i think and thrive i think there's ways they can each kind of find their own little niche doing something different than just playing a podcast, which any app can do. The New York Times app is lovely if you want to have a play with it. It's on uh, iOS at the moment um, and you need a New York Times subscription. Uh, well, congratulations, Karen. Um, I think you've got sort of one and a half points, which just makes you win uh, the, the quiz today. Um, as a prize, you get to review 20 seasons of Gogglebox uh, to give us uh, your views uh, next, next time on, on, the, on the media podcast. Uh, thank you to uh, both of you for joining us. Uh, Miranda, where can people keep up uh, with what you're doing? Well, obviously in the Observer Review podcast, so you can read that every Sunday and you can listen uh, to Paper Cuts on Monday, Wednesday and Friday. It's fun. Uh, and Karen, how can people see what you've been doing? Uh, you can just find me on Twitter as long as it, as long as Twitter is still there. It's Karen J-R, K-A-R-I-N-J-R uh, on Twitter. Uh, thank you both. And thank you for joining us today at the London Podcast Studios. Uh, you can now get 25% off your first booking here when you use the code MEDIAPOD at thelondonpodcaststudios.com. That's the code MEDIAPOD at thelondonpodcaststudios.com for a 25% discount. Uh, my name is Matt Deegan. The producer's been Matt Hill uh, with support from Laura Elwood Craig. It was a Rethink Audio production and we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.